Hey folks, it's me, Mickey Mouse, and you're listening to the Fodcast. Hot diggity dog! Hey, and welcome to episode 15 of the Thodcast, where I am joined by my brother Dawson Elke. I am Philip Elke, your host of the Thodcast, conversations about animation. How's it going, Dawson? Hey, it's going good. Happy to be here and conversate about animation. Yes, let's... Yeah, because animation is my strong suit. I plugged in my new Wacom tablet to my laptop. I started drawing a stick figure and it went dung. Not is that enough how you RAM. pronounce it? Like, Wait, like that's what I say, whack'em. Like, whack'em. Whack'em-ole. I don't uh, care if that's not how you say it. That's how I'm going to say it. All right, that's fair. I'm going to whack'em. Um, <laughs> the, the Annie Awards were last weekend, Dawson. Did you know that? I should have if I'm a host of an animation podcast. Uh, well, no. Oh, I did yeah. not. There's always awards shows going on in L.A. There's too many. Too much yeah. back then. Yeah. Um, well, to, today we are talking about a movie that was featured in the Annie Awards, but did not win the Best Animated Feature. Uh, that really that went to Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh boy! And that's mm-hmm. probably I. My guess is that'll snag the Oscar too. Um, it's probably a good chance. The nominees for Best Animated Feature at the 2019 Annie Awards were Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Early Man, Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, and Ralph Breaks the Internet. Um, the, the movie uh, Mirai from the uh, animated feature category at the Academy Awards uh, is, is, was actually the winner of the Best Animated Independent Feature at the Annie's. Well, they have a separate category. Was yep. it the, who was it convening against? Um, well, there's one with a French title called uh, Say Magnifique uh, Gâteau. Uh, French New Wave Animated Film. There's director Felipe Guadalajara. That's one here that I think is a Japanese movie called yeah, it's Japanese called MFKZ. Uh, there's one called Ruben Brandt Collector. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, and Tito and the Birds. So just to show how neophyte uh, we are in, in our animation knowledge, a lot of these movies are new to us, but guess I gotta up my indie animated game. Um, yeah. I don't know. probably yeah. a lot of really good stuff out there too. That's the problem. I really don't go out seeking this stuff as often as I probably should. I guess we'll ha- I'd have to see some of these things to find out just how worth seeking out they are. But, What's the uh, most hipster animated film you've seen? I would say Secret Life, The, Se- the Secret Book of Kells? Secret of Kells? Yeah, I don't even know the name, but... Um, yeah, I think it's The Secret of Kells. Um, I really liked The Little Prince. Uh, that The Netflix? Netflix, yeah. It's a what did you? Anna, yeah. French animated uh, film. It was really good. Um, I'm glad you think so. I was a huge fan of the book, and my best friend and I, well, yeah, we had a little something too much. We were both huge fans of the book. Then we drank a bit, and then watched The Little Prince, and we were all just in tears and destroyed. It's kind of so. mainstream. Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
I, I don't. There are probably I, some Miyazaki films that count as hipster, or in. I, Isle of Dogs is pretty hipster, but it's Wes Anderson, and I, I mean, he's. Yeah, are these like in what's the word indie directors or these acclaimed directors, these kind of prestigious directors? Are they even? Is it even hipster if you if you like them? Like I feel like Wes Anderson is is mainstream even while he is. Well, you just you have to kind of look at the intent and and you know Wes Anderson just has a very distinctive auteur sensibility uh even if you know his work has gotten a lot of mainstream attention uh, so I don't think it's as much about the um reception as it is the in- intention behind the artist and the, you know just the artistry the vision if you will your name probably counts then as hipster. I saw that. When, yeah. Um, I really liked that. Did you Did you see that? I haven't seen it yet. It was just crazy. All of a sudden, this Japanese film was like so popular out of nowhere that theaters started throwing it in in America, and it was like you could go see it pretty much anywhere. Sure, it was really missed cool. it. Uh, best animated special production was Mary Poppins Returns. So just. That's something fair. that yeah wasn't a feature or a short but, um and i don't recognize any of the things that mary poppins was up against but kind of cool that that won an award no uh, well today we are actually talking about a movie that has a bit of artistic artistic clout behind it um the director is definitely an auteur that is incredibles 2 from 2018 Brad Bird, the director, he's, uh, he definitely has a very signature style about his films. Um, he's, he's kind of a purist, um, hence taking 14 years to come out with the sequel to the incredibly successful original, The Incredibles, from 2004, we discussed recently. Which should have been the first sequel they ever made, uh, <laughs> after Toy Story 2, obviously, but... Well, to get through a couple cars films before getting to this one. <laughs> That's true. Two of them. Um, yes, this is the longest gap between uh, an original Pixar film and its sequel. But um, this this movie did, by the way, win two uh, Annie's Outstanding Achievement for Music in an Animated Feature Production uh, by Michael Giacchino. And then it also won Outstanding Achievement for Storyboarding. Dang, you can get an award for good storyboarding. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, without further ado, let's just jump right into this. Uh, yeah. Briefly, probably won't uh, go too in-depth, but there's a lot to unpack here. This is the longest animated film ever made at one hour and 58 minutes. Uh, computer animated film, I should say. Okay. Which wow. is a good sign. Uh, <laughs> that's one of my biggest complaints about animated movies, especially Disney movies. Um, too short. Yeah. Pixar, I feel like they struggle with that less. Um, their movies always seem pretty... They feel com- yeah, full, complete. complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this is no especially exception. Incredibles 1. Um and every Toy Story film, every Toy Story film feels like this just epic, like journey. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, what did you think of Incredibles two? I loved it a lot. Um, it 
maybe wasn't the most I don't know memorable movie of last year. Like I mean, it was uh, quite the impressive slate. I know what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, one of two animated superhero movies from last year. Um, I don't, you know, I don't like playing the comparison game too much. Um, I, I just, when I saw Incredibles two, it just seemed like an aggressively good movie, and it was kind of firing on all levels. You know, a very human, personal, like organic level as well as you know grandiose blockbuster superhero genre film Mm -hmm. and then creative and wacky yeah yeah (laughs) had kind of all the uh signature animated i mean talk about squash and stretch i mean you have (laughs) that covered with uh elastigirl helen um she got and she's the main protagonist of this film you could say Mm-hmm. which I really like about the film. I think there's a wonderful choice in the story. That's, this is actually the fourth time something similar to that has occurred where the, uh, basically the antagonist or the protagonist of a Pixar sequel is the sort of second leading character of the original. Uh, you had that with you know, Monsters University, Sully's, the main protagonist of the uh, you know original monsters inc whereas mike is uh, is lead protagonist of the second film um cars lightning mcqueen being the main of the uh of the original That's, and then yeah. <laughs> mater of course infamously <laughs> taking over the mantle in cars too uh, and then uh finding nemo marlin being the main character of the original ah. yeah pixar we're on to you we know your secret so this that's actually, not true for Toy Story, is it? Um, uh, no, no you're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this could be a precedent, and we're gonna talk about this a little later in the episode. Stay tuned for after our discussion on Incredibles two for a, a little bit of what I'll term uh, frozen corner. Uh, this being the Thodcast. Uh, originally conceived as a frozen fan podcast, uh, believe it or not. Um, we'll, we're going to be talking a little bit about frozen after, uh, let me all have to ask, is there <laughs> enough to talk about, about frozen for unlimited episodes? Probably you would say, well, uh, we, we haven't done this before and we probably won't do it every episode now until frozen two comes out. Um, we can, I mean, every, every little bit of new info that comes out or new insight that, or yeah, but maybe not every week. It'll be great to have Jody back for, for these little yes. discussions, but yeah, frozen corner, uh, stay tuned <laughs> if you're at all inclined, um, grab your mugs of cocoa and sit by the fire in our frozen corner. But maybe, uh, frozen two will take a cue from this pattern uh, of Pixar sequels and, and you know, while Anna, of course, being the main protagonist in the first film, uh, Elsa might be uh, featured more in, in the sequel. I'd bet my life on it, as Humperdinck. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, my conce- conception for the sequel, The Frozen, was to introduce a new character and have him be the sort of the main protagonist. Uh, Stay sharing tuned for Frozen Corner for. Uh, to hear more about that. Yeah. 
Well, this um, is about this is about new. You have new info, so this well, is new to me. So and new to the audience. I'm just talking about my idea for Frozen Two, which was to to introduce like an all new character. And I thought that would be kind of interesting and innovative. Do you innovative. want to save that for the Frozen Corner, or do you want to do it? Well, at, at an eventual episode in a later installment, sure. Not necessarily Great. right now, but. Not you need, you need to do one of those YouTube videos where it's like my story idea, and then there's a bunch of like pictures, and you like no, I'm not going to do a that. narration of the whole story. And... No, no, okay. and and of course people <laughs> would immediately wonder why would you come up with a a new like male main antagonist or main protagonist for a a frozen movie when it's supposed to be about two female protagonists? It, it's because and, the idea is really cool. Yeah, well, and, and it wouldn't seem like like this character probably wouldn't be featured any more than Anna or Elsa, but like it would be but just a new window told from his perspective, kind of in the way like the original Star Wars is told from the droids' perspective, you know. But yes, yeah. exactly. Or when a lot of you know, famous novels and literature are like. The, there's an opening chapter where some outside figure is like writing down their thoughts about events that they witnessed. Um, mm -hmm. Wuthering Heights being a good example of that. The mm -hmm. whole story is is the nanny telling, you know, what she, from her eyes what she saw. This whole, this whole wonderfully barbaric story of of two lovers. Um, well, this Incredibles two could be said to be told from uh, I think Jack, Jack Jack's, Jack's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking, but you weren't. So go into go into that. Um, I mean, this is a minor character from the original Incredibles. Uh, one that you know you could perhaps wonder why they even bothered to include a third child uh, of Helen and Bob Parr. The uh, you know the, the kind of co-lead parents um and yeah i mean he jack jack is is an infant in both films this movie picks up right after the original left off uh with the sort of uh opening fight sequence between the incredibles and the underminer played by exactly what i wanted them to do yeah well I, it's a it's a good set piece to showcase and the underminer of course played by Pixar mainstay John Ratzenberger and yeah we, this this fight like has no real conclusion it, it really just kind of plunges the Incredibles back into the same predicament they were in the first movie uh, but yeah it's it's good that they're showing these this you know continued uh struggle between supers and the law and uh the, the um, eventual resolution of that. Yeah, the law makes a great case in that <laughs> opening scene when they're debriefing the supers after the big fight. Did you even catch the villain? No. Did you stop the, ba the bank from being robbed? No. And <laughs> yeah, we have insurance for this kind of thing. The best thing that would have would have been if you just did nothing. Yeah, it, they they're digging themselves in an even deeper hole, which is a great setup for. Uh, you know, the, the main plot of the film. Speaking of holes, uh, the underminer being a very uh, <laughs> mole-like character. <laughs> in fact, um, in the first Fantastic Four comic, the, one of the villains is Mole Man. I don't know if you Is there any resemblance to the design of the underminer? Yeah, he's kind of a 
squat rotund character i imagine he well the underminer you don't even see his eyes he's his eyes are totally covered by his helmet i think it's a it's a similar design i mean i didn't realize till today like there is a dc character named elastigirl i'd either forgotten that or just hadn't heard of that because she's just such a an obscure character um but dc gave permission for um pixar to use the name elastigirl smart mm-hmm. of them good of them very smart so uh yeah the i mean the film follows essentially the superheroes attempt the incredibles you know attempt to uh break back out into the mainstream i, I like the um the conflict between you know this yeah, modus operandi on the part of not only the Incredibles, but also Frozone, and then these new characters to whom we are introduced. Uh, one voiced by Bob Odenkirk of Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad fame, Saul Goodman, uh, who plays Winston Dever, a uh, billionaire media mogul um, who's kind of the face of the operation Dev Tech. Um, who was also accompanied by his sister, portrayed by Catherine Keener, uh, whose name, if spoken aloud at any point during the film, would have been a dead giveaway. Uh, but her name is Evelyn, uh, Evelyn Dever. And I never put two and two together over the course of the film. Um, it's only later when, when reading her name did I realize, Evelyn oh, <laughs> Evelyn Evil Dever. Endeavor. Evil Endeavor. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, maybe uh, Mr. and Mrs. Dever could have <laughs> chosen a better name for their daughter. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne. <laughs> self Self-fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Well, yeah, and and so these two characters, uh, Winston, Evelyn Dever, do have a very similar origin story to uh, Batman. Yeah, they sure did. Um, that that whole dilemma of you know what would have what was the best? Yeah, I think he's kind of dumb that he went and tried to call superheroes <laughs> instead of like hiding and calling nine one one. I don't know. He, yeah, he, he, he sure was pretty secure in his friendship with the uh, superheroes. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of strange. But then, uh, but they had gone underground at, already. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that makes it even more dumb that he like called them. Um, mm-hmm. Well, he just was endlessly holding out hope. But um, these are the only characters seen to die in the film. <laughs> yeah, a revolver goes off. So yeah, I mean, we'll be going into full spoilers here, but um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a PG-rated film, uh, some some dark content. Uh, it's not by any means the first uh, PG-rated Pixar film. Um, it is, however, one of four uh, both Disney and Pixar animated films uh, to be consecutive release that are also sequels. So we have um, Incredibles 2, which is followed by uh, Ralph Breaks the Internet, followed by Toy Story 4, uh, and then followed by 
Frozen 2. We get Toy Story 4 this summer, huh? Yeah. Wow. The the release schedules of Toy Story 4 and Incredibles 2 were flipped. <laughs> Incredibles 2 was originally slated for this year, believe it or not. But huh. um, it ended up coming ahead of schedule. And um, When does course, that happen in animated filmmaking? Yeah, I don't know. They just must have really had a strong story and not much changed over the course of like when they went into uh, serious production on this film, which which happened shortly after the release of Tomorrowland, which was 2015, I believe. What, what, uh, sorry, what, what has Tomorrowland to do? Uh, well, Tomorrowland was directed by Brad Bird. Shortly after oh. that film's release, um, he was production, like, full production okay. began. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, they well you because you you use the words it, they must have had a good a good story right away. Um, mm -hmm. And they it certainly seems like they did this story. While you said in the beginning that this might for some reason wasn't as memorable as other animated films, and I resonate with that. After I left the movie, and as time's gone by, I like. I didn't remember a lot about it, but it doesn't seem like they ha it's a story that they like, there, was, there wasn't like a lot of hesitation. It, they knew exactly what they wanted to do and where they were going next. And every scene is like, has this heart to it where you're like, someone had this great idea. Someone had this great idea. This was a great idea. Everything that Bob does back at the house, everything that Elastigirl does, all of it, it's all really tight and really good. If, if, I mean, the movie's way smarter than I am. The whole, you know, going into the technology in use and Elastigirl and Evelyn with their whole plans of, of setting up the cameras to trap the screen slaver. And um, yeah, when they get into all that, like, fancy surveillance tech stuff, I really zone out. Um, yeah, a lot of fantasy, a lot of fantasy technology in this. I love her bike. That's probably one of my favorite things oh gosh yes the although i had the and then i started i i started freaking out i'm like wait a minute how does how does she keep the back half attached she must just have to hold on really tight with her thighs um, <laughs> <laughs> like seriously i mean Xenia on the top on that bike the front half has handlebars but the back the just your it's your butt's just on it like on a horse I, I i think so. we've got a uh, bat cycle from the dark knight situation where both wheels are independently controlled and they're like computer synchronized so that they're, they're both like you know self-propelled yeah they're both self-propelled but it still doesn't answer the question of how she stays on unless there's like little stirrups okay. that, well, that it, it wouldn't be hard like if they're both if both uh, wheels are are moving, like if it, it would maybe be harder to stay on if she had to just drag the rear wheel, but if it's also moving, it'd just be a matter of you know pushing and pulling the two, you know. Yeah, and, and when when you're trying to, because if and if they're both moving at the same time, but you're all trying to manipulate their distance with your actual body, like that, that sounds really hard to keep track of. It yeah. probably doesn't make any sense uh, in physics. I don't terms, know. But... I mean, it, maybe just it's probably not that hard to slightly adjust the difference in speed just by pushing 
you know, and, and pulling the, the two wheels, you know. Yeah, because you'd have to control the speed of the back wheel and control the speed of the front wheels. So you, you've got like two whole separate gearboxes that you're trying to account for or, you know. I, I don't think that's controlled through like the motorcycle controls. I think that's all just uh, Mrs. Incredible slash Elastigirl. Helen, as I shall henceforth refer to her. Um, yeah, like, yeah, using basically her strength to, to manipulate the bike. She's hammering on the throttle, speeding up. But then if she needs to back the back wheel up, it's just her own power moving it backwards despite the unchanging speed actual speed of the yeah or moving or propelling yourself farther forward with her front half that makes more sense mm -hmm. um and, and yeah she's just very dexterous on that bike jumping from like steel girders to uh windowsill yeah yeah just like <laughs> train track freaks me out it's like yeah. there's no how man like i don't care how super you are that is just so it's it's awesome though like it just makes incredible. for such a just thrilling animated set piece uh, very refreshing for you know a world that's kind of seen it all with just the deluge of superhero films that we've had over the years yeah it was, it was one of the more innovative action sequences the, the the motorcycle chase yeah how do you stop this runaway train um really well and um it's more believable because she is a superhuman who has like heightened senses and de dexterity and you know these crazy powers and and she's experienced on a motorcycle she said you know she used to have a motorcycle when she was how did bob not know that like she I don't know. <laughs> it, she was she used it while she was a teen and then like maybe it was i don't know she sold it because she needed money for college before marrying Bob. But it probably just didn't Bob. come up very often in, in their conversations, like her having a mohawk. He maybe knew about it at some point, but then had When she forgotten. said mohawk, was she talking about her hair? I thought she was still talking about the brand of the bike. No. No. I had a mohawk once. There's a lot. She meant her hair? Yeah. I, can't, I can't picture that at all. That's... Well, especially in like an alternate 1950s or 40, late 40s. Because, I mean, this, this movie is supposed to be set in like 1964, a very stylized alternate version of 19. Yeah, I got, I got my mohawk in the Pacific Theater. It was, a, it was on a dare with my squad mates. <laughs> like, yeah. I wonder, I could see her having been a in you know fighting in world war ii i wonder if they did like as superheroes they kind of like maybe there might it might not have transpired exactly as as it did here like there aren't actual references to world war ii in these movies are there i, I don't think there no are. no mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean it's it's very different because you do have technology like microchips and basically internet or cellular technology like dash is able to call helen on her motorcycle yeah <laughs> and also the, the fashion never strikes me as being like 50s or 60s uh like evelyn dever i mean she mm -hmm. seemed like just some modern woman like i love the johnny quest references though <laughs> i really want to watch that i 
I kept seeing the DVD in the in the back room where I was working at Target, and I like read the back of the case, and I was like, "This sounds amazing." Mm -hmm. Is it? Is it like a kind of a popular, beloved? Yes. Yeah, it's very, yeah, very beloved from that era. Um, Just surprisingly well constructed narratives, you know, for animation, you know, television animation at the time. That's what it said. It was like one of this is the first animated to like animated series to tell like a consecutive narrative while also staying like in realm in like the realm of believability or Mm -hmm. something. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, also reference to um, what was the, the Outer Limits, which I I think is a live action show. I read something about this having being the second time Pixar's used live action footage in a film. First, of course, being Wally. I don't remember there being live action footage. I just remember the they had they CG there was CG yeah. footage of this bank robber show preceding the raccoon attack. Oh, yeah, that was made oh. up. Mm-hmm. That was made up. Okay, I didn't know if it was like a reanimation of mm-hmm. a, a real property, but yeah, yeah, like. <laughs> Back to the, like the chase scene, um, it, you know, a similar instance in an animated film I can think of is, remember uh, the Adventures of Tintin? That I, had a lot of like wacky, vaguely. yeah. Chase I, well, I remember that about Tintin was there was a lot of things that were just too absurd. It was, it was, yeah, exactly. And like these are supposed to be normal people. Yeah. And the last girl I'll buy, I'll buy her doing anything, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, Tintin, Tintin was like Kung Fu Panda where you've got like vehicles riding on, on like electrical wires or, you know, just, just like <laughs> clothesline type situations, you know, but yeah, really stretching suspension disbelief to the breaking point. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it, if I recall, or just anytime the, the sequence of like absurdity as a result of like accident and coincidences Mm -hmm. that always bothers me way more than it's like characters doing things like helen was Mm -hmm. controlling everything she was doing on that bike Mm -hmm. all of the stunts were her careful calculation and coordination Mm -hmm. and uh yeah really makes you it's great i don't know it's just like you're you're like on the one hand you're just sitting by the pool having an honest chat about your family with your husband and then in the next scene you're doing things that no human could dream of in a million years it's like wow Mm -hmm. you really are superheroes should they should have like incredible power and celebrity honestly in the world Mm -hmm. like if they wanted to they could i mean there there probably is some kind of superhero fandom subculture um you you like she's immediately recognized by uh you know people riding in a spring breaking yeah in 1950s (laughs) yeah Exactly. One of them's like, marry me, Elastigirl. <laughs> marry me. I don't care that you're 49. Like, what? I, no, she's... I wouldn't care that I'm... How old is she? If she... In 30s, I would say. Still. She... I, that's true. I forget how young Violet and Dash actually are. Yeah, Vi- mm-hmm. Dash is, what, like 10? And Violet's 13, 14? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, she's elastic, so probably not going to crack. <laughs> At least yeah, not. I'm kidding. Not anytime soon. Uh, the actors of these characters are kind of getting up there. Uh, Craig T. Nelson is <laughs> seventy-four. He sounded so tired, even in the scenes where he isn't tired. He's like, "Hey, Decker, can you uh, can you uh, take Heron's thing?" 
<laughs> yeah. Holly Hunter is 60. She had the Carrie Fisher going on. Yeah, she was 45 when the first one came out. Uh, the uh, Sarah Vowell plays Violet is older than Holly Hunter was when the original came out. Course, and they got they got a new actor to play Dash, Huck Milner. <laughs> I, I forgot I knew that and forgot it because I, he sounds he sounds just like him. Oh yeah, you you don't notice it at all. But um, yeah, unless like Dash in the original were voiced by like a a female actor as they sometimes do, like they would have had to have cast a new actor. There aren't any guys who sound like that. Uh, you know, now who sounded like that in 2004. <laughs> yeah, my goodness. Speaking of uh, Haley Joel Osment. <laughs> Haley Joel Osment. He did not have to try as hard as he did in this one to sound young because there's a big, you notice a big voice change between Kingdom Hearts 1 and 2. I mean, he is post-pubescent, people. definitely, in Kingdom Hearts 3. So it's, he could play that character. I was thinking about that a lot today, actually. He's yeah. he's already had adolescence, yeah, as Dash would say. Is she having adolescence? <laughs> <laughs> Such a great line. Every yeah, every Violet line is and scene is amazing. And all Dash the details with and like the family moments. That's my favorite part of the film. My favorite See? aspect. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. But they wouldn't be what they were if the movie wasn't also awesome and full of superhero stuff. It's you know otherwise it'd be boring but like the fact that you know this is a movie about action-packed superhero action it makes those family scenes so much more familiar and enjoyable. i'm trying to think they stand out like the funniest i remember like the funniest laugh i had in 2018 which was while listening to a podcast where a guy was doing a billy d williams Lando impersonation and he was reading off of like a Denny's menu. (laughs) (laughs) Denny's had a Star Wars or Solo tie-in. And then he also went on to read this like crazy passage from a Star Wars novel about Lando talking about his wardrobe, including specific aspects of like the crotch area (laughs) of one of his clothing items. Such a trippy. That's bizarre. Yeah, thing to include in a Star Wars book. But um, the the funniest movie moment of last year for me was probably the uh, the spit take when the family, they go to the happy platter. <laughs> Bob is trying to reunite Violet with her estranged uh, date who forgets about her because Dicker wipes his memory. Uh What's his name? Tony, Tony, Tony Ryder. Yeah, yeah, he's got a big role in this movie. He does, and it's fun. He looks is way better. Is that a typical dad plan, or is that not a dad plan? Like, would a dad ever do that? Or oh, I, I is that exactly so. what a dad would do? I, I, I mean, he wants to make it up to her that, like, it was his fault that his mind got wet, you know, Tony's mind. Yeah. But he, he does, like, push it really far, like, even to the point of, <laughs> you can tell Tony is kind of like, you're kind of crazy. Oh, yeah, you're the, the completely wrong way of going about it, but that's why it's so wonderful. Yeah, her, she shoots all the water out of her nose in one glorious millisecond. Uh, 
that was yeah probably the loudest i laughed during the movie too and it's just... like she she usually doesn't drip like that. <laughs> <laughs> who says that again yeah and that one but she yeah. usually doesn't, dri- doesn't what drip are this you much. saying what does that mean <laughs> what is <laughs> mom go home you're drunk <laughs> he kind of is during much of the film from sleep deprivation yeah they could have had that in the film too like bob resorts to alcohol to deal with his <laughs> struggle yeah. i mean understandable that he doesn't at all because he you know it's just him in charge of the kids during a significant portion of the film um so it'd be kind of irresponsible for him to be breaking out the you know jack daniels but there is casual drinking in this movie. Kind of, Between uh, the ladies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Casual, like, mild curse words, too, which you don't see very often in, in animated movies. Because um, I think there's a strong correlation between, like, cursing and low box office returns. Um, unless you're Shrek. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that totally breaks with this movie because this is the highest grossing uh, animated film of all time domestically oh, what, by what, a wide margin. What curse words do they use? Oh, hell, damn, that type of thing. They say damn? Yeah, yeah. Who says damn? Um, well, a- Evelyn, actually, on, on multiple occasions. I, I don't think anyone else does besides her character. Yeah, so it probably works because she's a villain. And also because it's The Incredibles and, you know. No. And like, remember um, S- Steve? Is, is that the hipster dude in Iron Man, Iron Giant? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, B- Beatnik. Yeah. Like he. No, got... Dean. 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 Dean, Call me Dean. Dean, of course. There's a squirrel in my pants, oh, God. <laughs> He's. One of my favorite characters of all time. Thank you for reminding me. Of Previous that. Brad Bird film. Um, the, one of the characters in this movie bears a resemblance to Dean. It's, it's that uh, the one, you know, secondary superhero. Uh, electric? What's the name? Electric? Yeah. You maybe don't remember his name. The electrical dude who's kind of creepy looking. Kind of has See, that's this. why I'm confused. You said one of the secondary superheroes bears a, re- a resemblance to Dean, but all of the secondary superheroes look creepy, and Dean is like the most attractive animated character ever. So, well, just sort of, yeah, like like a more gaunt, more shriveled version of Dean, uh, Electrix. Um, yeah, I mean, I get like he's he had very he had a very defined jaw mm-hmm. and chin. This character in The Incredibles too, and Dean has very defined. He's you know yeah I, I think that character was initially designed as like a, a third sibling to the devers um he was going to oh. be a villain character but they uh yeah we've got we've got we're introduced to like a whole motley crew of supporting hero characters and yeah they are like all surprisingly awkward and creepy looking <laughs> yeah which is fine, you know, if you want representation of awkward and weird people, you know, you don't get that a lot in movies, but still, like they're, they were terrible from head to toe. They're outfits um, and yeah. Um, I don't know, I mean, 
they yeah, didn't all, they weren't all very, none of them were very interesting. They all had kind of weak personalities. Like, so I, yeah. that was probably the weaker point for me is like they introduced all these characters and I didn't end up caring about a single one of them, except for maybe Reflux because he's an old man and you automatically care about old people. Yeah, yeah. And like he had a certain appeal about his character. He was designed to look like a, a frog, which yeah. is what allowed that character to be kind of more appealing than someone who, you know, typically, you know, uses vomiting <laughs> as a uh, superpower. Yeah, that was raunchy, man. Um, then he had the crushy crush guy, crush hour, and the, the guy who's kind of a, a brick was his name. He's sort of like a juggernaut character. Um, and then Void, uh, she had a significant role, played by Sophia Bush, possibly designed to look like Kristen Stewart. Ha! Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I see that. And she she had a cool. Of course, all these characters, like these, this select group, were recruited specifically to become villainous minions, you know, by the Screen Slaver. So makes sense that they would all sort of have. Uh, yeah, it's a shadier streak to them. Yeah, so that you'd buy it more once they once they turned. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, the screech, uh, the owl, creepy owl character. Creepy. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. No, I mean, with great power comes uh, great responsibility, and you know, if you've got characters with tremendous power, it's understandable. Significant number of them, you know aren't necessarily the most scrupulous. Yeah, it's uh, throw, a, throw a pebble and see where it lands, you know? Yeah, I mean, the technology in the Incredibles world is kind of understandably heightened to help maybe combat threats from uh, superhero or super-powered super uh, sources. So the main antagonist in this movie is, uh, well, goes by the screen slaver as their moniker. Um, of course, uh, it turns out to be uh, Evelyn, Evelyn Dever. Uh, Winston Dever seems kind of like a, you know, red herring or, or a, an obvious um, suspect, I feel like, at the beginning of the film. Yeah, oh, a little too, a little too do-goody, too salesman-y. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of greasy. Uh, Evelyn seems like the chill one. And then, yeah, how did, I don't, I don't understand how she used the, so the screen slaver when Elastigirl finds his headquarters, um, it's of course a pizza delivery guy being mind controlled by Evelyn. Um, but how did she control his, his fighting? How did Evelyn make the screen saver battle Elastigirl? Uh, I would imagine. Because everyone else that gets mind, mind warped kind of they just they just go still and motionless until um well of course she makes everyone fight at the end you know i felt as, I, yeah. I, I was a little bit there what uh i don't know if she is directly controlling anyone maybe just like she's able to transmit fighting ability through the hypnosis because <laughs> yeah uh, Possessing the superheroes and just like yeah. triggering them to 
fight or like suggesting that they fight you know that's mm-hmm. one thing but mr pizza delivery guy yeah he he kind of she, she, she implies that she was controlling him um i the, although isn't she shown during that time to be like somewhere else like monitoring the yeah she's the, with winston yeah mm-hmm. so uh, maybe she just programmed fighting moves <laughs> that were then replicated by the delivery guy could be yeah 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 the um the screen slaver is just a puppet sort of uh avatar on the part of evelyn and and doesn't have too big of a role in this movie although it does deliver some really key uh exposition and motivation behind evelyn's true motives yeah his manifesto about i i really like when she's tracking his podcast it's really yeah. good that that speech is epic it's it's delivered in sort of a heavy-handed way but up against it's like played against um helen like sleuthing around trying to search for the source of the broadcast so it's mm-hmm. you know contrasted with some of the on-screen action and fits really well but like you yeah listening i and i feel like it's it's a really sort of truthful uh statement sentiment it is it makes you think and it's super meta too because well we could get into that um well yeah like the the whole idea of passive consumption of life without having to you know to work evelyn of course expresses earlier in the movie about i don't even know if it's earlier i I think it's later during like the um, it's during the second bout of casual drinking that she talks, <laughs> that she kind of expresses her. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, when was that? Was during a, a ceremony or like a reception of some kind when they're doing the? Well, yeah. It, what? What? I can't remember exactly. Um, well, um, is it the when, when she's meeting the new the superheroes? No. When she's no. Yeah, they're being introduced to the this new group of superheroes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's before the summit with the ambassador and you know the United Nations analog. But yeah, like they're they're talking and she's she's like, yeah, ease is what people are motivated for, by you know <laughs> the most. That's what that's what the people want. People want ease. They don't want quality. Uh, they want convenience. And they love to sit around on their couches and watch people on TV do incredible things so that they don't have to. They want to, they want to feel because they're not brave enough to go out and experience and break a sweat uh, in life for themselves. And, um, and like, what a, what, a, uh, what a personal attack um, or what a call out to our, you know, Netflix culture and our binging and our streaming and our content consuming culture and uh and of course yeah. i so what makes it meta is that they're pre- they present this message within an animated film about superheroes um, yeah. yeah you don't talk you watch talk shows you don't play games you watch game shows the whole like sensibility within the incredibles world where people are just content to like let superheroes fix things and are therefore surrendering their agency 
but uh but yeah i mean there's so many parallels in real life too and, and you know i don't know if i endorse this view maybe quite as much as uh brad bird maybe does <laughs> as this is all coming from his mind um and i i think this is a bit of an insight into his own like personal ethos like the screenslavers views because yeah. i mean yeah it's pretty easy to to like hear what the screenslaver says and then go he makes a good point but obviously he's taking it so far into mm -hmm. the realm of villainy and he pathologized you know it it could have been a he could have just been a guy who i really want to encourage people to go outside but he's like no there's a everyone is fundamentally broken and the system needs to be restructured and you know collapsed mm -hmm. and you know superheroes remain illegal forever yeah the, the whole uh, goal and goal is to yeah mind control superheroes and have them perform evil deeds and then yeah i, I don't know like if if that would ever work out to where like it wouldn't come out that they were just being mind controlled the whole time and uh therefore like they, they'd be exonerated for the acts they committed whilst mind controlled yeah you would think so Damn. maybe maybe it's kind of like syndrome she'd keep the whole uh, mind control thing well no it's known that she that um the screen slaver can mind control people you know uh, you know publicly broadcast during that interview that you know the news anchors being controlled and yeah, it's not like he was ever going to convince people that the superheroes were being evil of their own volition. I mean, he had already given away that part of his hand. So, yeah, I don't know what uh, that would uh, eventually lead to. Just the fact that such atrocities were committed that um, it would at least prolong the process. Like, you're not going to suddenly make superheroes legal if you've just been shown them, you know, killing a whole bunch of high profile dignitaries. Yeah. Or I don't know, mind tricking a bunch of superheroes and making them do evil things might trigger a reverse reaction where heavyweight problems need heavyweight solutions. So then the government is like, our, you know, superheroes are wreaking havoc. Now we need mm -hmm. uh, that. If, if there were a bunch of mind tricked superheroes wreaking havoc, then the government would probably call out to underground superheroes to riot meet the challenge mm. well i like the idea of the underground superheroes kind of making a social stand in this movie um the the whole you know debate with with the incredible kids incredibles kids you know they're <laughs> they've got uh understandable reservations about uh helen breaking the law in order to change the law um, but that yeah. also has very real life you know context as well yeah they're surprisingly like i mean surprisingly even keeled about it you know mm -hmm. their their very personhood it would seem is what's illegal and instead of you know just being enraged and saying like well we absolutely need to break the law because the law is unjust they you know the kids are like well or they're all like, well, gee, or Helen is like, the law is the law, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they all grapple with it, but ultimately decide that the the protest is worthwhile. Mm -hmm. That there's a way to there's a way to go about it. That's you know for mm -hmm. the greater good.
Mm-hmm. Um, really. Also, exciting. also some commentary surrounding. So, sorry, did I cut you off? No, no, no. Okay. Well, also some commentary surrounding gender and uh, several occasions, uh, yeah. including at the beginning when, uh, you know, because it starts off with that sort of cold open scenario of Tony being interviewed by Dicker, uh, reminiscent not of a scene in the original Incredibles, but the spinoff uh, Jack-Jack Attack, which was released shortly after uh, the original Incredibles for the DVD uh, in which Dan Dicker is interviewing the babysitter, Kari. Yeah. And, uh, so it's kind of a nice uh, callback to that short film. Yeah, I like the opening a lot. Um, I love the really sharp cuts to the subtle um, title, you know. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, titles. like the inner titles. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's just, you know, it you've got some interview and then it cuts sooner than you'd expect. And it's dead silent and just really subtle font. And it's like Pixar is proud to present. It's like super epic. Yeah. That's, that was probably made famous by something. I can't think of right now, but um, like that technique, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe (laughs) I guess you go all the way back to like psycho. That movie had very like quick cutty, title cutting titles yeah um the but like the um jack jack attack one of my favorite jokes from pixar when uh syndrome shows up to the door and and is talking to kari and he's trying to put on an act like being all friendly like syndrome trying to act friendly which is kind of cool like he just seems like an ordinary that's a deleted scene though geeky dude no no it's or is it a no? There's it's an, it's, it's there's a, an extended deleted scene where he's like, you know, uh, she's like, "What does the S stand for?" And he's like, "Uh, sitter." Or isn't that a deleted scene? When he was like, "It was originally going to be BS," but you know who? Isn't no one that a scene? It. I thought that was in Jack Jack Attack. I think it is. That's they show uh, Syndrome showing up to the pars in Jack Jack Attack, and that's when that whole exchange happens. Yeah, <laughs> like what does the S stand for? Well, it's it's a sitter uh, because otherwise I'd be walking around with a big BS. BS, yeah. On my chest. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, yeah, those that kind of like radar humor is just so much more effective in animation or or you know content that's targeted towards a younger audience because. It stands out. You're you're playing with the fringes whenever you're going to those places. Whereas, you know, in just any old, you know, adult theme product, you you know, you get right to it. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's not quite as tantalizing. Delightful. But um, yeah, I mean, this uh, the there's reference to Tony (laughs) Tony Reidinger. He uses the word manhood, and and not. (laughs) <laughs> not explicitly referring to Eddie, yeah. Eddie but he, he could have been i mean <laughs> he's like i'm i'm su- i'm really secure uh manhood wise because you know comment about he comments about strong women yeah he's like hey, i didn't run away i don't have a problem with strong independent women i i'm very secure manhood wise but <laughs> the whole superhero thing overwhelmed That's him good it, it cuts right to the heart of the root of misogyny and uh and patriarchy yeah. does it i i think i mean that's 
I would say what people would uh, point to as the main root of of patriarchal tendencies, you know, people, men being insecure about their own masculinity. But, uh, mm. you know, insecurity, of course, being the root and, and, you know, fear and that type of thing being the root of any of cultural ills. But the particular ill of misogyny, of course, being really... Insecurities. Exactly. Related to the insecurity of uh, won't go <laughs> of insecure men uh, afraid of losing their power. Um, but anyways, and then yeah, later Bob's references to uh, you know she's a credit to her uh, to her gender or whatever, <laughs> and then the you know, argument about who should be the first to reveal themselves to the the world during the whole, um, you know, Winston's grand plan. Yeah. To roll out. They made a great case. I mean, she's more efficient with a lower collateral damage count. I, mm -hmm. It'd be fun to see the numbers. I, um, I was like, I was hoping that they'd like point to a PowerPoint and that like the stats would appear on the screen and we could see like, just how much damage Mr. Incredible had done compared to Frozone and Elastigirl. <laughs> well, heavyweight that, problems require heavyweight solutions. Yeah, and I'd, I'd, it'd be, I'd be fun to know, or like a brief montage of like particular cases. Do you remember the, do you remember the bulldozer case? Or do you remember the um, Tyrannosaur attack? Oh, or do you remember, like, like, you know? like the Cape montage? That'd be yeah. kind of cool. Um, <laughs> That'd be a lot of work for just a very limited amount of screen time right and we i mean we all saw the opening to incredibles one so we can you know have an if that sort of thing happened on a regular basis but yeah well and they do show clips from that open from incredibles from the original uh, the, the interviews TV, yeah, they... yeah it's nice we should talk about the the visuals um before we wrap up um this movie is just so gorgeous and you know, the original looked good, but like this one's just so much more detail, like yeah. the fibers of the suits and all the particle effects and just the world being so expansive. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, um, like even like when Violet throws her suit in the garbage disposal and turns it on and like the shaking, it causes the faucet to rotate. Just all that little detail just makes everything so... <laughs> the, the philodendron. <laughs> the philodendron. Uh, Frozone's ice looks just incredible mm -hmm. um, as it like gets ground up and starts to melt and that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. It's just a lot more going on than, of course, I mean, that was 14 years ago since the original, so makes sense that this i mean hour and 58 minutes long it's basically a live action movie just happens to be animated <laughs> true so with all the details you and and that's the kind of the thing you you, you used a great term was it last episode or or the one before you talking about i think it was during our frozen episode uh you used the term can you think of what i'm thinking of um gumby oh, oh gumby the gumby of, uh, which gumbiness we'll, of film. 
months. Yeah, that's got to be a recurring bit. Um, kind of like my uh, sausage party rule. Uh, but yeah, the, the gumbiness. This movie had very low, like... Very low gumbiness. The yeah. only thing the only thing gumby about it is when Elastigirl stretches, but yeah. that's intentional. And exactly. so it really works. Um, but otherwise, no, very uh, just down to earth, believable um, and gorgeous animation. Um, you, keep, you, you keep saying, and, and, and this is great, when like characters in these animated films, they look like who's. Um, uh, and yeah. sometimes, and often background characters, like you pointed out, those background characters, they all look like who's just very low res round, uh, you know, maybe they're a bit more on the gum, higher on the Gumby scale, but a lot of movies just, they're like, their, their leads suffer from the yeah. gum, from looking like who's like um, little dot no, like little button noses, cute little button noses. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Cute little button, very just perfectly spherical faces and, mm-hmm. um, or oval even, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah. uh, like train your dragon characters look a bit hooey sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, the, and, uh, there were a lot frozen. of background. Oh gosh. Yeah. When we were watching frozen, the background characters all look like who's in frozen. It's hilarious. They do. Uh, yeah, they, the, the, just proportions of the faces are just very cartoonish. Um, and, and tend to be kind of similar, kind of homogenous throughout those background characters. Here in Incredibles, there really didn't seem to be like a homogenous feel to any of the background characters. They all felt individual. Yeah, I think that's kind of the key. And and the acting is another thing. Like I watching Incredibles, I, I had to wonder, like, was any of this mocap or was a lot of it mocap? Because they... Their, their movements are so sharp and believable and realistic. Like, um, and even when they're exaggerated, because they're obviously exaggerated, but just like the subtle ways that you know they'll they'll look around aimlessly for a little bit in search of of their of the object of whatever they're trying to find, or you know they they just I don't know do subtle little believable human things. Um, yeah, there little hesitations wasn't... and uncertainties in the action that um, really fleshes. Mm-hmm. Flushes them out. It wasn't any mocap, but they use a lot of like video references for the, uh, the animation. Do they ever have the actors like, other than just read the lines, you know, put a camera on them and like oh, act yeah. out this part? Like, what would you do? And then, okay. I, I, th- I think they've done that ever since the dawn of computer animation. Uh, maybe not with like the original Toy Story and stuff, but I think one. Uh, human characters became a common thing. Um, they, they always used like the actors' performances as video references for the animation of the characters. Because a lot of because t- I'm just thinking whenever I watch like behind the scenes footage of actors reading their lines into the mic, usually they're just doing really expressive gestures that like their characters aren't at all doing in the in the film. Uh, but they're, you know, oh. they're staring straight ahead, reading their lines and just like kind of flailing. Um, well, I, you're familiar with Bob Odenkirk, right? From Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Like um, his, uh, you know, Winston in this movie just has the exact same mannerisms as Bob Odenkirk does. You know, kind of 
So that's probably, they're pulling up video references yeah. of these actors' work and like going mm -hmm. off of that rather than like, you've recorded your lines for the actual voiceover, but now like memorize your lines and quick act out the scene. They probably don't do that. No, but yeah, they just look at them in the sound booth and so, kind of mimic yeah. that. And, and that's, uh, you know, they come up with these designs sort of early on in the visual development stage, but as these characters are being animated and formed in the frame of the film, uh, they, they actually come to resemble their actors uh, quite a bit, oftentimes. You, you're having these um, characters manipulated to look like it's the actors, you know, speaking these lines through these characters. Yeah, you can't really get away from it. It just makes it that much more natural. Yeah. I even that this is one of the things I um, said when I met the directors of Frozen. Uh, one of the questions I had was, um, "How much influence did uh, you know the actors have on on the appearance of the characters?" And the, the answer is basically none. Although the fact that they do reference the performances quite a bit during the animation does you know, inevitably lead to a lot of similarities just coming through in, in the way these, these characters move, at least facially. Right. Facially, how they shrug their shoulders, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you wash your hands? With soap? Did you dry them? Is this all vegetables? Who wanted all vegetables? I did. So, are we going to talk about it? What? The elephant in the room. What elephant? It's time to make some wrong things right. Help me bring supers back into the sunlight. We need to change people's perceptions about superheroes, and Elastigirl is our best play. Better than me? <clears throat> Bye, sweetie. I'll watch the kids, no problem. Well, do you think there do you think there will be an Incredibles three? Um, absolutely. Although Bradford's known to be stubborn, uh, and you know, <laughs> I think even if he had to be dragged, kind of kicking and screaming, like, and he doesn't ultimately have control over the franchise. Um, and he hates, he, I, I listened to an interview with him. He hates the word franchise. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, no, understandably. It's a, it's a con, it's a content type word. It's, like, it's yeah, it's like a pejorative almost. I, I don't mind it. I, I think it's perfectly acceptable, but it, yeah, it, it call, calls to mind like a fast food chain <laughs> mm -hmm. and you yeah. don't want that when it comes to your films that you want to hold in high esteem. Right. I would much rather say the Star Wars saga than the Star Wars franchise, but franchise just refers more broadly to mm -hmm. it, the property as property, as merchandise. Um, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's fine. Like, I, I like when a piece of art becomes so just ubiquitous that there's a whole culture that emerges surrounding that, and that that is sort of the franchise. That, that's the you know, broader immersion into uh, our popular consciousness. 
I mean, that's what you want. Like, you know, mm -hmm. artists, no matter how pure these artists are, like ultimately they want people to acknowledge and appreciate what they make. And, you know, no one wants to not get famous or not make money off of, you know, these. That's the thing. Yeah. But at, but they... Like, like the whole like art for the sake of art, but it, and then you, you simply look down upon or issue any sort of economic advantage that can come from that. Like, yeah, no, that, that's dumb. That shouldn't be the point, but it shouldn't also be, you know, demeaned. Or no, I think, down but I think you need to, what, I mean, ultimately I think all artists want is they want to make something meaningful and true they want to start with art for art's sake and then they want art for art's sake to become successful and powerful. But what they don't want is to just be a part of a machine that mass produces a demographic and statistically generated product. Um, no. They don't well, want to start with the money in mind and then make something. They want to start with the heart and then a hope that that is, works. And that's what Pixar is really good at. They make sequels obviously their sequels are going to make money, but they put the same heart into them as if they were creating a, as if they were birthing a baby and idea yeah. for the first time. Well, and the economics of art operates, the, the, yeah, the ec economics of art operates on a completely inverse uh, spectrum of what, you know, the, the economics of commerce does, which is if, if a piece of art really isn't that, you know, it, it resonant with a, an audience, it just, it doesn't make any money. It, there's almost no reception or, you know, widespread acclaim, you know, financial gain, that type of thing. Like you, you have to be really successful before your art starts to see a profit. Right. But once it starts to see a profit, it's almost, it's usually like if it rains, it pours, you know, it, it it's exponentially successful once it reaches the point where it's actually successful. It's sort yeah, of, it's, you get what I'm hard, saying? It's hard. What my, what my old theater management professor said, I believe, I believe he put it this way. He said, uh, it's hard to make a living, but there's a chance you'll make a killing. Yes. And that's why that's why star, the starving artist is a stereotype because there's just enough people out there who who believe in the risk who are willing to take you know doing this as an occupation yeah. doing art as an occupation is most likely for a long time mm -hmm. going to be us going to be un, unrewarding fiscally but yeah, the, if the... if the idea gets picked up by the right person then boom you explode and um, and now with the internet, it's just so much easier to reach a market. It's so much easier to reach a market. That's why there is a demand for that ghastly word content, because more people have more ways of getting exactly what they want. They, I am in the mood for list of adjectives. You can find it. Yeah, there's and, there's little middle ground when it comes to art, and and yeah, once you start to try to like camp out in that middle ground of you know, maybe not making it at all versus making a killing, it, then it, it does, it becomes, what's the word? Like tepid, mediocre content, you know? Yeah. Just this is your next podcast, The Economics of Art. You said that's how you... Well, I, I mean, the saying the economics of art is kind of like saying 
you know, the logic of cartoons, you know, the logic, thus, and like, there is none, that being there is really none. Um, well, it's, it's, an is, it's an industry, though. So well, and actually, that's another thing I started mm -hmm. thinking about um, is the industrialization of all these things. Uh, hear me out. Like, the, I started thinking the music industry. Mm -hmm. What is that? And how did that where did that come from? A hundred, little more than a hundred years ago, music was something that families and people and communities just learned and shared together. But now music is this product that we consume from a small population, you know, of people at the top uh, or, you know, indie artists, if you're hipster enough to go looking mm -hmm. for them, that you consume very, uh, but once, but like music used to be this really selfless, uh, intimate, um, familial uh, gathering point. Gathering well, place. So, it, the, the root term of industry refers to just the act of creating. Right. Uh, I mean, we've um, extrapolated out into meaning like the, the business, but industry like that t core term itself does refer to the process of something. Yeah, being um, industrious. Uh, yes. It means... So I, I like to think of, you know, the entertainment industry or, you know, music industry in terms of like the creative act. Right. But so often the modus, the impetus for being industrious is with these really high minded, you know, really wanting to be popular, wanting to be successful, wanting to make it big, wanting to fit a mold, wanting to ride mm -hmm. the you know, success of something else. It, yeah, these lofty always, goals of, yeah. of success and fame. Rather than, you know, the, maybe. Well, again, uh, conversely, the, 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 or the most likely way to yield success in, in this industry is to simply enjoy the process itself and not have those ulterior motives. That's where you get so many stories about the, the cliche or the stereotype or, well, and the very true archetype of the struggling artist who collapses or just, you know, loses sight of himself, loses themselves in the, in the grind and the hustle and has all these big dreams, but it ends up consuming them because they forgot what really mattered, which was love and relationships yeah. and the simple yeah. things you gotta you gotta love what you do and uh you'll never work a day. <laughs> the right uh yeah so, yeah um, well that was the philosophical aspect of the pre-frozen corner yeah well i i it is so important and a lot of these mo movies especially from disney uh like do have themes about like following your dreams and doing what you love and and there's there's a big there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, you have to find something that motivates you. Yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of times people kind of get hung up on things that motivate them that aren't exactly productive. <laughs> like uh, like entertainment. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you get a sense from these Pixar films that the same spirit that all these people had when they were just young bucks and when they were doing it for fun, mm -hmm. they're still doing it for fun even though they're massive. Mm -hmm. and, you know. um, the character Henrietta Selleck, she's the, um, the ambassador uh, who 
you know, gets abducted or whatever. Um, you, you might recognize that name as a reference to Henry Selleck, famed Tom animator. Uh, Henry Selleck directed Nightmare Before Christmas. And and some like some of the Leica movies. I think yeah, he directed Coraline, I believe, um, and James oh, wow. and the Giant Peach. Yeah, very cool, very so, cool. He was a uh, colleague of Brad Bird back in the day. Uh, he, you know, contemporary during Brad Bird's time at the Disney Animation Studios in the early '80s, as well as a classmate at the California Institute of the Arts, Cal Arts. Cal Arts. Uh, which was home to the, yeah, the classroom A113. And then A113 shows up in a lot of Disney and Pixar movies. Um, and probably animation movie, you know, other animated films as well. Hey, honey. How are the kids? Everything's great. Is she having adolescence? And Jack Jack? He's in excellent health. Num num cooking. Oh, God. Cooking. Whoa, gay. That is freaky. You know it's crazy, right? To help my family, I gotta leave it. To fix the law, I gotta break it. You've got to, so our kids can have that choice. Thank you, young man. All right, well, yeah, that was a lot of uh, philosophical meandering and musing and pontificating, but we can uh, wrap this up here. I think we did a decent enough job yeah. of covering. The Any film itself. Incredibles three predictions, quick. Before well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a, a little bit of a time jump. Mm -hmm. I, I was I kind of surprised that this movie didn't, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, how how old should Jack Jack be? <laughs> I mean, I I would love Jack Jack as the villain, a film. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I he could. Yeah, one of the there could be some conflict amongst the three kids. Uh, it's implied that Jack Jack won't retain all of his powers. Uh, he's listed in this film as having seventeen. I won't go through them all, uh, but um, it, it's implied that he won't. Ha you know, superheroes when they're babies can have multiple powers, but then they grow into only retaining a few of them. I still get the sense that Jack-Jack is extraordinary, even by that mm -hmm. standard, though. Edna exactly. seems, like, thrilled by him. I mean, it's that seven, like, you know, I could, a child being born with five or six, maybe, but 17, huh? Well, he's you a... You got yourself a ship. Um, he's, he's a jack of all trades. Yeah, wow. <sighs> That's so Just obvious. Like Why Dash am I not? can dash and Violet... Uh, Stop! You're making me feel really <laughs> stupid. Okay, well... Well, Violet, how do, what does Violet have to do with her powers? Her shields well, are... Well, her hair is like really dark purple, isn't it? That's kind of true, I suppose, depending on the light. Uh, Bob, what a strong name. Mm -hmm. Helen, hmm, sounds flexible. I don't know, but like... I don't know, and, and Violet's a wallflower, would you say? Oh, yeah. Well, and Helen, Helen like is Helen of Troy because she's the most beautiful animated mm. creature ever constructed. A lot of nice like lingering shots <laughs> of Helen in this. Robert movie. the Bruce is very. Well, um, a great shot. I, you know, I I wrestled with this. I was like, okay, Helen's lower thigh 
waist hip ratio is like it it used to just a not like it's obviously so um, like wonderfully attractive but like i i yeah i had always just thought it was exact purely exaggeration they can do it because they want to and then i'm like no hold on there's a very practical reason that she looks the way she does all of her elasticity has to you know conservation of mass and energy it has to have a place to gather so <laughs> her legs can stretch so much and they get so thin at the end because there's all that density gathered up there that's ready to kind of decompress um and yeah. the same is obviously true of she has you know this waist that you know can continue that just stretches but then her top half has a lot of room for it so anyway it's all logic that logic doesn't at least uh cartesian or platonically extend sorry i'm trying to come up with the laws of conservation newtonian Newtonian yeah yeah uh, in a newtonian sense it doesn't extend to uh jack jack but that's because he draws on the power of alternate dimensions to increase yeah, his mass an anomaly. Mm-hmm. and that that's why i want i i love the idea of jack jack as the villain because when he is a he's a teenager with with just really complicated emotions and ideas and he you know has maybe a very strong sense of justice and realizes i'm the most powerful being that has ever lived i could make the world exactly the way i want it to be and he becomes this apocalypse type you know and then his family has to somehow save him and i think that could really tack i think they could really address some because they're they're so good at addressing powerful themes of family and they could really go into the darker corners of you know family prodigal family members and you know family conflict and family Mm -hmm. division even you know just you know yeah Family members go, families go through really tough stuff. And this family already has gone through some tough stuff. But like what happens there when there's that one family member who kind of goes yeah. off well, the deep? There is huge potential. Uh, I think there is a chance that they could even do like, uh, I mean, a fully rendered series out of mm. Incredibles. Yeah, they can do that with everything now. And I'm like, do I want everything to be a series? Can I just have my movies? I don't want to, I don't have, I, there are so many wonderful shows out there, but they simply take up too much time. To but it's, it's the Incredibles though. You, other people like you would probably take time to watch a 10 part Incredibles series, you know, with a 10 part Incredibles series. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you put it, you know, a, a 10 episodes an hour each, that's, that's why like Game of Thrones and Stranger yeah. Things and, were so. And no compromise on. Like, Mm-hmm. No compromise on animation quality. Yes, that's key. Yeah, they could do that over the course of a couple of years. Um, it, it's probably more likely they would do another sequel because uh, you, you can accomplish quite a bit in these movies. Um, it, it'd be nice to just kind of round out a, a trilogy and uh, it'd be a nice send off for the cast. Uh, anyways, well. <laughs> We'll, we've talked about this enough, so we'll sign off today for the Thodcast. Um, Jody was unable to join us today, unfortunately, but um, I've had a lot of fun chatting about The Incredibles with you, Dawson. Um, I always love been... chatting about The Incredibles. Yeah, Incredibles too. We, I mean... Oh, I forgot to mention, going to see Incredibles 2, 
I went to see it with um, the girl I used to date and was trying to get back with her and was really hoping she would date me again. And we went to Incredibles and the whole time I, I, she said she would have an answer for me after the movie. So the whole time I was super wondering what was going to happen. And then Oof. she totally said yes. And now we're engaged and we're going to get married. So Oof. thank you, Incredibles 2. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because that whole story is kind of a red flag <laughs> in the whole relationship department. But I, I was going oh, to. So? Well, and I was going to clarify that this is coming from a man who is now currently engaged so <laughs> yeah i don't see any red flag i mean we we had a lot of people date and break up and f mm -hmm. for a while and get back together but like waiting on an answer from someone uh, during a movie <laughs> as uh uh seems like a jarring experience for someone trying to uh you know get through their dating life but uh, it worked out. That is a very remarkable, incredible story. Yeah, I was like, was w is this going to just be a time we hung out or would it be our first date? And it ended up being our first date. Cool. All right. Well, uh, speaking of which, I, I feel like at the end of the movie, it might have made, it would have felt more natural for like Violet and, and Tony to have just, gone on their date and left the rest of the family to go off on their crime fighting. <laughs> That's like, what I was hoping. Mm -hmm. Oh, you make such a good point. I was, yeah, it would have been, she's, they all do that, the camera pans as each one of them looks at each other and then she's like, no, stop, pull over, just let us out. I wanted her to just go and like yeah. do the date, not even, but she did say she'll be back before the previews are over, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it wasn't as if she was just gonna skip out on the date. So it, it kind of worked. Um, all right. Well, uh, everyone, uh, warm hugs all around and stay tuned for our frozen corner <laughs> at the end of this episode. All right. Uh, have a wonderful day, everyone. So I'm, I'm happy I didn't have to resort to YouTube to watch the frozen uh, bits from Kingdom Hearts 3. I got you at just the right time. Yeah, that was quite fortuitous. That was destiny. Yeah, exactly. Well, you would have texted me anyways if once you got <laughs> you probably would. Well, wanted. what I have, let's see, what was my thought process? I'm like, this is probably the only thing Philip's really interested in. And like, I, I'm playing the game in your house in, you know, full view. But, and I, I want to kind of, I don't want to just get it over with, but I want to go through it pretty quickly. I, Man, I had beaten the Tangled World and the Toy Story World, and then not all at the same, not all in one sitting, but then, yeah, uh, the evening came and you walked in the door, and I had just landed on Arendelle. I was like, well, all right, there is a god. Time to go. <laughs> and I had no idea what to expect from it. Uh, typically, in a Kingdom Hearts Disney World, uh, the character or Sora and his friends land at the beginning of the narrative of the respective film and interact with the characters as they go about a much um, abbreviated abbreviated thank you abbreviated version of the plot from their film um, and that is so far proven true in kingdom hearts 3 except not toy story toy story was a whole new thing but um yeah you land and uh you watch uh you land on a frozen beach and watch as the as ice films over the lake and you see Elsa skating away from Castle Arendelle and you decide to make chase. That's where we begin. 
So, Philip, what did you think of uh, Frozen in Kingdom Hearts 3? <laughs> Uh, it was great. And I mean, I want to check out the rest of the game, too, at some point. I, I still need to beat Kingdom Hearts 2. Um, Did you play the first one? I, I've beaten the first one. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, wow. I don't want to... The thing is, like, I, we don't have the PS3 copy of Kingdom Hearts 2 here. And I, I want that so I can just start where I left off on the PS3. Oh, I, we have the right. PS4 version. I don't want right. to have to go through all that beginning nonsense. I'll go through it for you. Well, if you want to, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, man, I got, I, I was replaying Kingdom Hearts 1, got stuck on Atlantica, and then just said, I can't, I don't know, ain't nobody got time for this, but I would love to keep going. No, I need to finish the first one, which we do have on PS3, and then I do want to go through Kingdom Hearts 2 on the PS4 version, or at least get up to that point. Um, but yeah, seeing uh, the Frozen level on Kingdom Hearts 3 does make me want to play the game. Did it uh, and and get to it again? Yeah, I mean, I it was great. You know, it was it was like watching the plot of the film just with sort of alternate uh, sequences, but it was great. I mean, I it's just a total nerd out for me to see new dialogue from the Frozen actors. They got all the actors back: uh, Kristen Bell, Adina Menzel, Jonathan Groff. Uh, what? No, I thought you said they didn't. No, no, they did. Um, yeah, what uh, What made you think that? No, I I, I told you, remember, uh, they didn't get, they got Josh Gad, of course, as, as Olaf, and uh, they didn't um, get Hans. Hans has no dialogue. Right. Well, you do see him. Well, you were sitting there on IMDb, and you were like, yeah, this person's a Broadway actress, or this person, and you were no. like, I really like Elsa's voice. I That whole time, I was getting the impression that these were these were different actors no. except for Josh Gad. He was, he Olaf was obviously. No. You're They're... kidding me. That was Kristen Bell and Idina Menzel. Cause they are Broadway actors. All the voice actors and frozen are Broadway actors. Oh, I, man, I, okay. Kristen Bell, she's really... been on Broadway. Um, even though she's you know, more famous now for film work. You were the one checking the facts, and all I remember from our, our, our short communication over it was I, got, I somehow got the impression that it was not the same actors, but I, and I apologize for that. Since when has Kingdom Hearts not gotten the original actors, unless they're like dead or it, it's Tom Hanks? Or it's Tom Hanks. Uh, well, that's a really good point. Uh, they... As well, I don't know. I back in the old days, I would. It seemed like it was pretty half and half. Or I mean, I guess or Robin, Robin Williams. Williams. Yeah, they didn't get no. Robin Williams. But I like, don't think all, they got the original Jack Skellington. Um, yeah, maybe not. I mean, they they didn't get uh, Danny Elfman to come in to the booth for the video game. I, it seems like they could have, but they probably just had a double that did just as well. But yeah, like and and of course the genie and Woody do have actors established doing the roles in other projects besides Kingdom Hearts as well. So they just kind of got their backup performers yeah. to play both of those roles. Well, that makes it an even extra nerd out because it, it's, it's just so cool to, you know, a visit of a film that you love, but it's kind of like a dream where as like you're dreaming about the movie, but then you enter it and all of a sudden these characters kind of, they break out of their 
their film going on rails trajectory to like interact with this new curiosity is like, Oh, Sora, Donald goofy, who mm -hmm. are you? And they, yeah, they say new dialogue. Uh, they're like mm -hmm. still going on their same adventure, but, mm -hmm. um, in new ways. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, really charming. this was a bizarre scenario because they just directly lifted the song, let it go from the movie soundtrack. And that came out of nowhere for yeah. me. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was awesome. I, I enjoyed it. But, you know, I, I mean, I immediately recognized, you know, the scene focusing on Sora, Donald, and Goofy. And then the piano riff starts playing from the, from the movie. Yeah. The, the opening piano riff playing with Goofy's face squinting and snow billowing in his ears is yeah. just aesthetic perfection. Like, and I could tell it was directly from the soundtrack. It wasn't a re, you know, reorchestrated or arrangement. It was the no, original was... recording. Uh, and and some it, of the yeah. animation was ripped, possibly straight from the film. Uh, I mean, some of the snow, like with the, the creation of like the staircase bridge, looked very convincing it looked kind of like the original but well, especially after we now know from recording the podcast that it took what 128 hours to render that scene i just can't imagine these game creators I, like redoing all that i think it all yeah i think it probably all was remade for the game because i could was, tell that the character she was like a lot of yeah. her animation was but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought the castle, you could sort of see some of the seams that, as far as I could tell um, that, that weren't it's, quite up to the fidelity of the film. Yeah, it's a bit simpler, a bit blander. I mean, it still looks you know great, but just uh, not all at the same you know, level video, of detail. But. Yeah, video game quality. Mm -hmm. But just surprising that they... Uh, I mean, it, it was probably done as like a demo at first and then they were like oh let's just throw it into the game should i fact check no, i don't know it's or, it's not a big deal no. okay but yeah uh, i don't know if the, maybe one new revelation from the game um like there was a line where anna says she she barely saw elsa growing up um and that's not necessarily canonical but um just provide some insight and it, I mean the the two of them so they were there were 10 years between you know Elsa's or Anna's memory wipe and the the parents being killed so so those 10 years would have been kind of things kind of going on business as usual but Elsa just being more closed off and and there's just the question as to how closed off was she during those years how much yeah. interaction you got a lot of Elsa talking about herself uh, in the Kingdom Hearts mission. Like, because Sora confronts her and is like, why are you running away? And so she has this opportunity to really, like, express um, what, she's, what she's feeling. The, the isolation and the fear. And, you know, I, I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to hurt mm -hmm. anyone. She kind of says very, that very, sim very simple dialogue. But, yeah, yeah it, was, it was nice to hear her voice. She, I mean, she has so few lines in the movie. Just, uh, but yeah, I mean, Idina Menzel is just great. As, you know, like her speaking lines are, you know, wonderfully delivered, and she's got just such an appealing voice. I feel mm -hmm. it was really kind of kind of rusty, well, s sultry, 
that's Russian. She, 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 oh, she yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she she has sort of a femme fatale rasp almost. Contrasted. But, uh, but she sounds she sounds very youthful and you know, she's got kind of that uh, that razor sharp pitch to her voice that that um that ice. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. It just kind of cuts to the bone. Um, yeah, I had fun. A lot of hack and slash gameplay. And Marshmallow was the toughest boss in the game up to that point. The toughest boss I've encountered. And this is why I'm glad I don't go on Reddit because I don't want to find out how much of a like noob I am. But I was like not having a problem with any bosses in the game until out of nowhere, Mr. Marshmallow Man just dominates me five times in a row. And uh, well, and then he ends up being your companion for the rest of the level. That yeah. was amazing because uh, he's he's so big and helps you fight a giant ice wolf um so i really bonded with that character now he's probably my favorite character in frozen well um, no no other characters became your companion either during the level no that yeah. would i i would have assumed Kristoff and even anna or elsa at one point you know because elsa can do ice magic which is yeah cute. i can do ice and fire and thunder but whatever um party, yeah. yeah i thought because fighting alongside elsa would be ba i'm really curious because in the earlier games you go back you go to each world twice and so far these missions have seemed longer than the original missions in the first two games mm -hmm. um and there might be more worlds than in the earlier games but i will be curious if we do go back and what the and then maybe get a chance to fight alongside Elsa then. Um, the Marshmallow Man's connection to Elsa was really touching. It was much more than I would have expected from simply a conjured familiar. He, you know, looked out over the mountains in her direction and just says, Elsa, so yeah. mournfully. And you're like, oh, man, there's a, there's a real connection here. Yeah. Yeah, it's the kind of the, the overarching theme of the film, the sentimental bonds between people who are connected uh through love the theme of kingdom hearts but oh times yeah a hundred and over sentimental and overly childish and naive and mm -hmm. innocent but uh, mm -hmm. well it was, it was the right choice for uh the game to include frozen well uh yeah so uh, a little taste and a little teaser of what's to come later in the year. So this has been our little frozen corner. I don't know, is that what I'll call these the tags at the corner. end? Of, yeah, frozen corner. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> We're free. Frozen corner. All right. Oh boy, have a magical day, everyone.